Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As Georgians, we can take great pride in the rich literary legacy of our state, with writers such as Flannery O'Connor and Alice Walker, to poets Sidney Lanier and Natasha Trethewey, to name just a few. Later this hour, we'll hear about the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame, established 20 years ago. Our guests include the multi-award-winning playwright Alfred Urey, along with the distinguished author and professor Ralph Eubanks, who writes about the importance of place in Southern literature. First, the High Museum showcases an outstanding photographer. I've come to believe that the best work tends to result not from the imposition of an idea on a situation, but from being responsive to what's going on once you get there. Those words belong to photographer Daoud Bey, an artist known for his collaborative spirit. The High Museum is hosting a major exhibition of works that span the breadth of Bey's career, from his street portraits taken in Harlem in the 1970s to his most recent series, Reimagining Sites of the Underground Railroad. Daoud Bey is with us now via Zoom, along with the High Museum Curator of Photography, Sarah Kennel. Welcome to City Lights. I'm glad to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here too, Lois. Great to have you again, Sarah. Daoud, Please take us back to your early days, taking pictures in Harlem, taking photos of strangers in public. How did that begin? Well, that goes back to 1969, when I was 16 years old. And there was an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Harlem on My Mind. And it was a very controversial exhibition. And because of that controversy, I decided to go and see, I think I went to see what the controversy was about. I can't even say I went to see the exhibition. Uh, I had gotten my uh, first serious camera from my godmother the year before, but uh, suffice it to say that there were picket lines in front of the Met around this exhibition. And as it happened, on the day that I showed up at the Met, there were no picket lines. And because there were no picket lines, I think fate had decreed for me that I go in and see the exhibition. Because quite frankly, I'm not sure I would have crossed the picket line uh, had there been one. And because there was no picket line, I went inside of the Met or what became uh, the first museum exhibition 
uh, I ever saw the first trip to a museum that I ever made on my own. Uh, it was a very intimidating experience. And uh, I eventually found the Harlem on my mind exhibition. I was too nervous to even ask the info desk where it was. It was a completely intimidating experience. But I walked around and acted like, acted like I knew where I was going, uh, as everyone else seemed to be doing. And eventually I found the exhibition. And that was a transformative experience for me. The experience of seeing ordinary African-Americans on the wall in a museum, and probably just as important, people walking around in the gallery of the museum, looking at these photographs giving them serious consideration. That was a hugely transformative moment and began to suggest for me what my subject matter might be, what I might do with this camera that I had gotten from my godmother. So the experience of that exhibition and the experience of going to see uh, Harlem on My Mind and my own family's history is what led me to decide that making photographs in Harlem would be my first project. What was the most striking aspect of the controversy surrounding the exhibition? There had been a number of meetings that were held in which uh, various members of the African-American art and cultural community had asked the Met they could have uh, some role as active participants in the construct of this exhibition that purported to be about their community, but in which they did not have an active role in constructing the way in which that community uh, was represented. And also the uh, lack of African-American photographers participating in the exhibition with the exception of uh, James Van de Z. It's shocking. Who would be allowed to tell a community's story? Who was being allowed to tell the story of this particular community became a very contentious one. And unfortunately, the Met led these community members and artists on in a series of meetings that ultimately were not destined to end in uh, anything but a thank you, but uh, it was nice speaking to you. And because of that, they decided to uh, pick up the exhibition. Wade Kawaba, uh, who had uh, been invited to, to participate in the exhibition, ultimately declined because he didn't like the way that they were going to use his work in that exhibition, so he declined. He would have been one other African-American uh, photographer who would have been included in the exhibition, but he decided uh, because of the contentious conversation around the show to uh, not participate. It seems astonishing that was so recent and yet that audacity existed about who decides, and in this case, white curators. Uh, absolutely. It's a very contemporary conversation. And that's why when people uh, ask me how I feel about the various uh, controversies taking place in museums right now around largely these same issues, to me, it feels like 1968, 1969 reduction, because this isn't the first time this conversation has been had. To me, it feels like a familiar conversation this whole idea of moments in which institutions of in power of all kinds, including museums, are spoken back to and people demand a place in that institutional conversation. I'm gonna add though, that I think what's so interesting about your visit, Dawood, to the 1969 Harlem On My Mind exhibition is that despite the controversy and the problems with the exhibition, you took two things away that were really important and that really shaped your career. And one was the power of representation, of photography to represent. And the experience for you, as you've talked about, of seeing everyday Black Americans on the walls of the Met was really powerful. 
And you also took away an understanding of the power of institutions themselves to shape concepts around community. And so those two things, you've really used both of those to kind of create the direction of your career and to transform institutions through your work. We're very lucky that there were no picket lines that day so that you did go in to see the show. It was an entirely auspicious moment for me to show up at that museum because it shaped not only my sense of photography and Black representation, but it gave me an ambition, you know, that photographs of Black people could exist on the wall of a museum. And it also gave me uh, a sense that the museum was and is a place that can be actively engaged in a transformative conversation. So pretty much everything that I've gone on to do and the way that I've worked with and engaged with museums comes directly out of that formative experience. And it was also the reason when I completed uh, USA, my own photographs in Harlem, it was the reason that I decided that the first place that work should be shown was in the community in which the work had been made, which is why I approached the Studio Museum in Harlem about exhibiting that work, because that was one of the other issues around Harlem on my mind, that it was a uh, work that was about an African-American community being shown outside of the community, that the community itself did not have immediate access. Well, you certainly have pride of place in our museum here. This retrospective is such a treat for us to be the only museum in this region to host. Can you talk about how the exhibition is set up? Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, we're, we're thrilled to have the exhibition here in Atlanta. The High Museum has had, of course, a long relationship with Dawood. He was in the first round of artists commissioned for the Picturing the South project back in 1996. So we're thrilled to welcome him back. And uh, much like Harlem is, was the sort of uh, cultural capital of Black America in the 1920s, we can kind of think of Atlanta as occupying uh, a position like that now. The exhibition is an overview of many of the key projects of Dawood's career since the 1970s. And it's organized almost chronologically with one exception. And each series really does give you a hint into what's to come to the next. So altogether, there are seven sections and we begin with Harlem in the 1970s. We move through Dawood's experiments with street photography in the 1980s onto making larger, kind of more formal street portraits in the late 1980s and early 1990s using Polaroid cameras. We see his return to Harlem in 2015, 2016, a city that has changed tremendously since he photographed it in the 1970s. Uh, there are also a number of works that uh, Dawood made, uh, portraits, the collaborative portraits um, that he made with students uh, across uh, schools and across the country. And the exhibition ends with two of Dawood's most recent projects, both of which are his forays into American history, looking back at seminal events in American history uh, through the lens of Black experience and kind of amplifying the role of Black Americans in the construction of our history. These include his work on the 1963 church bombings in Birmingham and ends with the very moving series, Night Coming Tenderly Black, in which he reimagines the experience of an enslaved fugitive individual making their way north towards freedom in Canada. Mm -hmm. In 1996, you mentioned, Sarah, and I was hoping you, Daoud, would talk about the Highs Picturing the South series that you did. Would you talk about your collaboration with Atlanta High School students at the time? Yes, that was uh, a part of a Centennial Commission, Picturing the South. Uh, that I did with the High Museum in 1996. 
And at that time, I had been doing projects with the uh, 20 by 24 uh, Polaroid camera, making photographs of young people, uh, high school age students in various cities around the country. And that work was about two things. It was both about making resonant portraits of young people who I often hear are left out of many conversations, especially institutional conversations, art practice conversations. So I wanted to both make a representation of these young people, but to also bring them into my practice to kind of demystify the way in which an artist works and to make work with them that ultimately would end up on the walls of a museum to give them a different sense of what the museum is. Which of course parallels my own experience of walking into the Met in 1969 and seeing photographs of ordinary African-Americans on the walls. I don't think most people think of themselves as being worthy of ending up in a work of art that ends up in a major American museum. And I just wanted to deconstruct that idea by making work with them that would in fact end up in that kind of space a space in which they may or may not have had a relationship with previously, but would definitely have one with once their images were hanging in that space, along with their friends and their families and other people who may have thought about the museum in a very particular way. That's kind of like the shape of the work I do. There are multiple overlapping agendas that have to do with my interest in creating a space of representation for certain people whose images, I think, are either uh, stereotyped, essentialized, or left out of the conversation completely. And then finding uh, what I think ways of using the medium of photography in an interesting way to do that. Photographer Dawood Bay and curator Sarah Kennel of the High Museum of Art. Discussing the new exhibition, Dawood Bay, an American Project. We'll hear more of this conversation after a short break. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the photographer Dawood Bay and curator Sarah Kennel. We're discussing the High Museum's new exhibition, Dawood Bay, an American Project. Here, the artist talks about his riveting series called Class Pictures. Class Pictures is a kind of, a sort of snapshot of America through its young people uh, at that particular moment, starting that work in Chicago in the Midwest, where I was living then and still live now, and then making some work in New York, making some work in California, 
I, I wanted, and then, you know, in uh, Florida as well, I wanted it to be geographically representative of the country. And I've always been acutely aware, and I think most people who work with photographs realize this, that photographs tell you a lot less than what they do tell you. They're basically these mute two-dimensional objects that sit on the wall. And there are certain things you will never know just from looking at them. You wouldn't know from a portrait whether someone is an only child, whether they have siblings, who their parents are. There's a lot of information that are outside of the frame of a photograph. And for class pictures, I thought it was important to bring that information into the construct of the work and to create a space of self-representation so that those young people that I was photographing could kind of give a sense of who they were in the world through their own voices. And a kind of one plus one equals three way, you know, because uh, the text tells you one thing, and you don't know what they look like from the text. And the photograph gives you something else, but you don't know their inner thought from the photograph. I wanted to put these things together to make a, a deeply dimensional representation of young people, my representation and their self-representation. That was the first time that I used text in my work. The title of that project, does it imply a double meaning? Yeah, yeah, class picture. You know, there's the, the school class picture, but there's also this representation of class diversity within the country. It, it was intended to mean both of those things. It, it was a photographer showing up in a school to make some portraits in the tradition of the class picture, you know, but it, it was obviously something far more complex. But I wanted to kind of anchor it to the idea of the collective class picture, even as it was representative of a class and social diversity. Yes. Among the photos that viewers will see in this exhibition is this series, The Birmingham Project, based on the horrific Alabama church bombing in 1963 that killed four little girls. Would you describe this series? Well, that series had its beginning in 1964, when I was 11 years old, and there was a book called The Movement. And uh, my mother and father brought that book home after hearing a lecture by James Baldwin uh, at the church that I grew up in, in Queens, in New York. And after the lecture, there was a benefit book sale of this book, The Movement, which had been published by SNP, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, as a fundraiser. And my mother and father bought a copy of the book and bought the book home. They didn't tell me that I had to look at it. They just left it sitting in some convenient place where I would look at it. Because I was a very curious kid. I was going to look at it. They didn't have to tell me first. And in that book were some really horrific pictures. The book was a book of photographs of and about the civil rights movement. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, playwright and uh, writer, had written a text to kind of weave all of these different pictures together. And uh, there were lynching photographs in the book. There were photographs of all the things, I guess you could say, my parents had tried to protect me from all my life up until that point. And there was one photograph of a young girl lying in a hospital bed and her eyes were covered in two big gauze bandages. And that girl was there with Jean Collins, who was the sister of Addie Mae Collins, who was one of the girls, one of the four girls who was killed in the dynamiting of the church. And she had been wounded. She ultimately uh, lost one eye and partial vision in the other. And looking at that picture when I was 11 years old, I often say that my life could be marked as before that picture and after. 
because that picture just steered itself into my psyche. And I never uh, completely forgot that picture. I don't know if at that age, I intuited that I was pretty much the same age as the girl in the picture. That, that may have been why, in spite of it not being the absolutely most horrific picture in the book, that it struck me uh, so deeply. Maybe uh, 40 some odd years later, one morning lying in bed, that picture came washing back to me. It just like something shook that picture loose and it came rushing back to me. And I sat both upright in bed and that image, which I hadn't looked at in a very long time, that image was there. And so with that, I was still in the midst of the class pictures project when that happened actually. And with that, I decided I need to go to Birmingham. At the very least, I need to go and try to figure out what photograph I might make in response to that. So that was the beginning of uh, the Birmingham project. I started making several trips there. My first trip, I visited 16th Street Baptist Church, the church where the bombing had happened. I didn't know anyone uh, in Birmingham at that time. And I just started making visits to Birmingham as I have done for most of my projects prior to that. I contacted the area museum. And of course, this goes back to the way I think about the museum as a potential partner. And I uh, got in touch with the Birmingham Museum of Art and told him that I'd been visiting Birmingham. I was thinking about making some work there that I would at some point like to exhibit. And would they be interested in, at the very least, meeting me and having a conversation about it? Even though I had no idea what I was going to make, over several visits with the museum and started meeting people in the community. And probably most importantly, started doing research at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, uh, which is where I found out that not only the four girls had been killed that day, but two uh, African-American boys had also been killed that same Sunday in the violent aftermath of the bombing. The bombing was actually just the beginning. And once I knew that, I knew that I had to bring those two boys into the shape of whatever the work was going to be. I started meeting people. People had all kinds of ideas. Why don't you make portraits of the survivors, the civil rights foot soldiers who were still available? And that didn't really seem interesting or resonant enough for me. Eventually, I decided to uh, make portraits of young African-Americans in Birmingham who were the exact same ages as those six young people who had been killed that day. To give those six young people a more tangible, less mythic, and palpable presence to these six young people. And so working with the museum, I started uh, putting out a very wide call to the community, started meeting young people in school and letting people in the Birmingham community know that I was doing this project. And it still felt somewhat incomplete. I wanted to figure out how to allude to the, both the passage of time and the tragic loss of possibilities that their early death suggested. Uh, which is how I then started to think about making portraits of African-Americans in Birmingham who were the ages that those six young people who were killed would have been. And pairing those with the portraits of those young people and making these diptychs, each of which then embodied 50 years. The Four girls that were killed were 11 and 14, and the boys were 13 and 16. So I photographed young, young African-American girls in Birmingham who were 11, and African-American women who were 61, and boys who were 13 and 16, and African-American men who were 63 
or 66. And it was a very uh, intensive project because I didn't want them to be just young people. For me, for it to resonate fully, I wanted them to be that age, not just young and older, but that age to physically embody the age of those young people uh, who were killed. So it was a very intensive uh, reaching out process of making that work. Uh, I spent several months photographing in two locations in Bethel Baptist Church, which was the church that was pastored by the activist minister, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Bethel Baptist Church is the church in which the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was formed, among other things. So that was one site. The current minister embraced the project fully and just opened the original sanctuary to me uh, to use as a space to make the photograph. And the second location was the Birmingham Museum of Art itself, which, of course, during the 50s and 60s, like all Southern uh, public institutions, were the segregated institution. So I wanted the places where this work was made to embrace both pieces of Birmingham social history. You know, you mentioned you wanted the impact of the children's deaths to go beyond the mythic. And I think in juxtaposing their youthful pictures with those of children, now adults, now upper middle age as they were, it is so powerful a way to take away that veneer. It, it reminded me a bit of the decision by Emmett Till's mother to have the casket open. You know, it, the little girls are too adorable, and the boys probably also sweet, lovely children. You look at that, you think, mm-mm, too bad. But then when you see how their lives were cut short. It's, it's just stunning what you do in this juxtaposition. Yeah, and what was, what was ironic was that Trayvon Martin was killed while I was down there working. Another young African-American boy killed. So it really, for me, underscored the fact that the past is not the past, it's always present. The past doesn't stay in the past. But the real challenge for me was how do you make the past resonate in the contemporary moment? Not to just go and make a photograph of 16th Street Baptist Church, but how do you visualize this history in a way that makes it resonate? And as you said, there's always, you know, history is always two things, it's the mythic history, as it gets tidied up and retold. And then there's actual history, which is usually a lot messier and nuanced and in some ways contradictory. So I, I wanted to have a conversation with uh, both that mythic history by taking these mythic four little girls and giving them a palpable physical presence. Like this is what an 11-year-old girl looks like. Well, you capture a more distant past in the 2017 series, which has the poetic title, Night Coming Tenderly, Black. What do these photos convey? Well, the photographs are meant to imagine or reimagine the path of self-liberation in Northeastern Ohio along what is called the Underground Railroad as a fugitive, formerly enslaved African, and then African-American moved toward freedom uh, by way of Lake Erie in Ohio. The project takes its name from uh, the last uh, couplet of Langston Hughes' poem, Green Variation, uh, which is Night Coming Tenderly, Black Like Me. There's something about that phrase, night coming tenderly, black like me. 
not night coming forebodingly, night coming harshly, but night coming tenderly, black like me. And I began to think about the fugitive moving through this tender space of blackness, under cover of this tender space of blackness, as, as that blackness kind of ushered them uh, to uh, towards Lake Erie. And when I thought about uh, this idea of uh, blackness as subject, blackness as narrative, and having that embodied within the photograph, uh, I immediately thought about Ward de Carabo, whose photographs of African-Americans are very often very dark, but very beautiful. And there are black subjects both moving in and out of and coming out of the blackness of this space within de Carabo's photograph. So the photographs are printed very darkly as to suggest being made at nighttime or at dusk under cover of darkness. They are materially inspired and informed by Ortega Wava's photograph, which also a very dark, kind of beautiful material blackness. And even though in my photograph, there are no figures in the photograph. They are made and imagined from the vantage point of an escaping African-American moving through that space, trying to imagine that space as if through their eyes, what that looked like, what that felt like. And then they're printed very large because I wanted them to be not only a kind of photographic experience, but I wanted the prints to almost envelope you in the darkness and the experience that the work is about. That series was made in 2017. Wasn't that the year when you received your MacArthur Fellowship? Yes, it, it, it was. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Well-deserved. I'm surprised it wasn't much earlier. I think it's an amazing recognition of the cumulative impact of Bay's talents, not just as a photographer, but also as somebody who's really, you know, convened communities around photography and kind of transformed the ways in which museums themselves operate and the decisions we make about what we show and who we are including both, uh, you know, on the walls and among our staffs and on our visitors. So we're really grateful uh, that Dawood's show is here. Hi, Museum of Art Curator of Photography, Sarah Kennel, and photographer Dawood Bay. The new exhibition, Dawood Bay, an American Project, will be on view at the High through March 14, 2021. You can find more information about this show on our website wabe.org slash citylights. Southerners take great pride in their storytelling, a tradition enriched by the combined heritage of all those who have lived in this region. To honor Georgia's rich literary tradition, the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame was established, and this year marks its 20th anniversary. Joining us now via Zoom are the University of Georgia librarian Toby Graham, the distinguished author, journalist, and professor Ralph Eubanks, and the multi-award-winning playwright Alfred Yuri, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Toby, please tell us how the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame got its start. Sure. So the University of Georgia established the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2000 to recognize the talent of our state's writers and to promote Georgia's literary legacy. 
you know, Georgia has some of the best people like Alfred Urey, who's with us today, Alice Walker, Pat Conroy, Natasha Trethaway, Flannery O'Connor, even people like, you know, songwriter Johnny Mercer and many others. So over the years, we've inducted almost 70 Georgia writers that you can learn more about at GeorgiaWritersHallOfFame.org. What are the qualifications for being inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, you have to be an excellent writer that is nominated by, uh, by someone, and anybody can nominate a writer for induction in the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. And then our distinguished panel of judges meets annually, and they consider factors related to uh, the author's uh, body of work. And they have to be, in some sense, a Georgian or have written a major work in Georgia. Yeah, I was listening to some of the names you mentioned. I think Mississippi would vibe for Natasha Trethaway, and there are a few others. Alfred, you live in New York? I do, yes, ma'am. But I'm an Atlanta boy. Oh, yeah, that we know. And Natasha Trethaway is a graduate of the University of Georgia. Yes. She was the cheerleader there, too. Yes, she was. And I was captain of the cheerleader team, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. On November 8th, there was a special virtual event honoring 69 Georgia Writers Hall of Fame members during UGA Spotlight on the Arts Festival. Professor Eubanks delivered a virtual lecture titled Georgia's Literary Past and the Future of Southern Letters. Would you give us an overview, please, of what you discussed? Uh, well, I wanted to talk about the, the idea of what it means to be a Southern writer today. And much of this was really based on the way that we think of the South as an intellectual construct and kind of a rethinking of that intellectual construct as the South be changes, becomes more diverse, and also uh, based on what I have been witnessing with my students. As I think I said in the address, we all make ourselves up from a toolkit of options. Or we construct our identities from a toolkit of options. And I've noticed that my students are constructing their Southern identity from a very different toolkit of options than I've seen in the past. So essentially, you know, thinking about what is going to be the future of Southern writing, it is going to be this group of writers who are rethinking what it means to be Southern. And what do you see among those expanded identities or components that go into the identity of being a Southern writer? I think it's much more of a sense of rooted cosmopolitanism. So seeing themselves as part of the South, but also as part of a global culture as well, not strictly within the region itself. So that's that's a very different way of thinking about what a Southern writer is. And I think it's essentially what Flannery O'Connor wrote about that, you know, you can write about your corner of the world, but you also need to think about how your corner of the world fits into a wider world. Alfred Urey, you were inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2014. And you were among those honorees on November 8th. You have won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, Tony Awards, and an Oscar. Now, how does it feel to be honored alongside other Georgia literary legends? I think it's overpowering. There was a plaque, a card up the, the, uh, at my induction, and it has, says, Honoring Georgia's deep literary legacy. And there's my picture and the picture of Margaret Mitchell and a picture of Martin Luther King. That's pretty intimidating. It's a very high honor and I prize it greatly. What inspired you to become a writer? Listening to stories. My grandmother had four sisters and they used to go at each other and I would be a little boy playing on the floor with my stuff. And they would go back and forth and it just was riveting. They would say things like, I saw Helen Jones last night. You did not. Yes, I did. You know, and it would just go on like that for hours. You know, and my mother liked movies, so I went to the movies a lot when I was probably too small to go. I just bought the whole package. 
and I wanted to be a writer, always. Well, you have expanded the package, and many of the themes in your plays, such as Driving Miss Daisy, Last Night of Ballyhoo, and Parade, focus on Jewish life and relationships in Atlanta. Why was it important for you to write about Jewish identity in the South? Well, I didn't have much Jewish identity, and that really bothered me my whole life because we clearly were Jewish, but we didn't celebrate anything much Jewish. We had Christmas trees and, believe it or not, Easter egg hunts and all that stuff in our little German-Jewish community in the 30s and 40s. And uh, I didn't understand what was worth it to be have to be a Jew. I would have, you know, it was treated like it was a disease in my little set that you had to sort of get over. There was none of the rich heritage that there now is all over the place in Atlanta. And uh, I, I grew up robbed of my heritage, really. Hmm. Well, in exploring that struggle with assimilation and acceptance, what did it say about the Jews who were living in Atlanta around the turn of the 20th century and in those early decades? I think my particular ancestors was only a small segment of the Atlanta Jews, and there was a whole healthy bunch of Jews in Atlanta, I now know, who celebrated the holidays and uh, went to Hebrew school and were bar mitzvah and all those things. My particular family wanted most of all to be Southern. They wanted to be Southern and they wanted to be Americans and they had to be Jews. I learned when I wrote The Last Night of Ballyhood that Jews weren't the only ones that were self-integrating. There was something, I don't know if Ralph ever heard of that term about paper bag parties, and but all my black friends told me that in college, they had paper bag parties. And if you were darker than a paper bag at some of these parties, you couldn't get in. And that really floored me. And I, I met Scots who, Highland Scots were better than Lowland Scots. And Boston Irish were, were not as good as whatever Irish. And it wasn't just the Jews. It was people hating yourself or just wishing you were something else. It just fascinated me. I mean, this whole Jewish thing is gone now this whole Jewish better than other Jews thing. I think once the Holocaust got known, that kind of knocked the lights out of it. So now it doesn't exist, but there are always self prejudices in this world. And I'm very interested in social systems and uh, Jane Austen made a lot of success <laughs> writing about it. So I just had it in my own way. In your toolkit. <laughs> Ralph Eubanks, in March, you have a new book coming out, A Place Like Mississippi. And I've read that the book honors and explores the landscape of Mississippi. You have written about race, identity, interracial families, and place seems paramount throughout your work. Why does place seem essential to Southern stories? I think because is one of the, um, is quoting you know, the Georgia writer, Janice Ray, when she talks about her corner of South Georgia, and she says that the place owns her very body. And I think that is how many Southerners Feel, those of us who, particularly those of us who grew up in the rural South, as, as I did, I knew every inch of the 80 acre farm I grew up on. I, I go back to it very often in dreams, although it doesn't exist the way that it once did. But I think those of us who grew up in a much more isolated South have this profound connection to the land. And I think even those of us who may not have grown up in that with that rootedness, it is passed down to us. And what I have noticed driving you know, through Mississippi as I spent you know, about 18 months doing um, between classes and other writing, how the 
the literature of Mississippi shifts from the Gulf Coast to the Piney Woods, to the hills, to places that are, have great mythology like Natchez and Vicksburg and Oxford and the Delta. Uh, so I think their stories are rooted in place. And as Eudora Welty famously said, place opens a door in the mind. Writing this book, it was an attempt to be become much more intimately aware of how the geography of this state of Mississippi affects its writers. Toby, I was hoping you could tell us if someone goes to the website for the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame, what resources they can find on each of the inductees. Sure. So for, for each of our inductees, you'll find a uh, biographical sketch of each one. And you also will find uh, on that site links to our past year's induction ceremonies. So you can hear remarks by Alfred and, and all of our, our other inductees uh, as they're uh, our living inductees, as they're accepting their induction into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. And for some, we've done additional uh, interviews with them, more extended interviews. And you'll also find that on the site as well. As of just a few days ago, uh, you're now are also able to go and, uh, and watch Ralph Eubanks' uh, lecture that he's just described to us. And you can watch it in its entirety on the site. University of Georgia librarian Toby Graham of the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. We also heard from the distinguished author and professor Ralph Eubanks with the Oscar and Tony Award-winning playwright Alfred Urey. There will be more information about the 20th anniversary celebration of the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame on our website, wabe.org slash You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Lorraine Rodriguez-Reyes tells us about the Mommy Confessions, her one-woman show on the virtual stage at Aurora Theater. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.